Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing. And ho- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. I'm Tara Prabhaka, Global Director, Client Impact at Cantor. So we have with us James Croggs, the Chairman of Calm, the Campaign Against Living Miserably. But James, you do a lot more than that. So I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about what you're up to. I am. Thank you, Tara. I am a um, 47-year-old man embracing a midlife level of confusion, (laughs) which um, that's a negative way of looking at it. In a positive way, I consider my life to be a series of side hustles in a sense that all the way through my career, I have done quite a lot of um, free consultancy and charity work, which have developed interests beyond earning money or working for the man. Um, which has culminated in recent times of running a uh, management company for some new UK artists, music artists, um, and latterly restarting a 110-year-old British workwear brand called MC Overalls. But I've been working with Calm for 14 years. uh, And this may be urban myth, but I like to think I was second in the door in a sense that I was at a conference talking about uh, one of the very first digital marketing conferences uh, where on the way to the conference, I quite literally re- tore up my script uh, on the basis that it was the day that um, antisocial behavioural orders were issued um, and the government were wading in and effectively all the press was saying that young people were naturally feral and up to no good. And I was the VP of marketing at MTV at the time and I felt that was a gross misrepresentation of actually the extraordinary energy that I found amongst our young audience. Uh, so I set about talking about um, the power of young people to change culture. And um, at the back of the conference that afternoon was the founder of Calm, who had registered the charity only two weeks prior. And she turned up the next day at my office and quite literally dumped the issue of male suicide on my desk and delivered what we lovingly call the holy S numbers. I'll leave you to guess what the S stands for. 
um, which was even in those days, 12 men a day were taking their lives. Uh, that's 84 men a week. There's one every two hours, and that 76% of suicides are men. And it's the single biggest killer of men under the age of 45. And her parting question to me is, what are you going to do about it? And in my career, that was the most compelling kind of question I'd ever been presented with. And 14 years later, I'm now the chairman. So, so James, I think you know, the, the idea of today's podcast episode is really to talk about a number of things related to gender, and particularly more on the, on the, the male or masculinity side, I think we'll, we'll get towards. You know, a lot has been talked about recently around gender depictions in advertising. Uh, you know, people feel that, whether they're men or women, they feel that they're in, you know, incorrectly portrayed. So where does this fit into your perspective on uh, sort of the broader sense of gender and, and, and stereotyping, I guess, in, in society? I started in advertising, so I find it very difficult to sit here and take advertising down some 25 years later, because I think the nature of advertising as a form asks creative people and account people as I was to reduce issues and issues of gender or anything else depictions of people down to something relatively simplistic because that's how advertising works it's a war of attrition as far as I understand it you try and say the same thing to as many people as many times as possible and hopefully some of it sinks in you could argue it's a fault of the form or actually it's just the nature of the form to be reductive I look at the communications world now and particularly in light of what I do with the campaign against living miserably and actually I'm much more interested in behaviour. A long time ago, certainly when I started, it was all about demographics. Where people came from, you know, how much money they had in their pocket, what they did with their lives. And then it moved in the 90s and the early noughties into psychographics, which is beauty of data as it enabled us perhaps to suggest or extrapolate what people might be thinking when they were doing certain things. And now I think we've moved into a world where it's entirely about behaviours which is actually what I might say I'm going to do. It might be quite a long distance from what I'm actually going to do. And I think, therefore, marketing has begun to realise that actually brands, to be really successful, have to adopt a certain set of behaviours. And I think the truth then, when you start to put a gender lens on that, is that we don't live in those old binary worlds where there was black and white men, women, and nothing in between. And God forbid we should try and kind of appropriate or explore the grey because advertising as a form I don't think is particularly able to explore the grey. Whereas some of the behavioural marketing stuff that is now going on, I think is better able to stand shoulder to shoulder, peer to peer with its audience and actually elicit certain behaviours, whether it's through nudging or budging or any of those other strange terms that we now apply in marketing. And therefore I don't think it's quite as blunt, which I think is befitting of the age. I think marketing is catching up with the reality of people. Completely agree with you, James. So, so is there an example, a good example, uh, that that comes to mind of a brand or, or an organisation that is is kind of getting it right from this behaviour standpoint? It sounds terribly um, parochial to me, but I'm going to use Calm because it's dear to my heart. Calm as an advertising brand, as a as a brand that unifies a huge swathe of the population in the UK and indeed increasingly abroad, men and women, the bereaved women as much as the men who are potentially in crisis or have been through crisis. One would argue a brand like ours should be an advertising brand that should be permanently communicating and doing you know, posters and things. And actually, we have quite an interesting backstory of doing kind of straightforward advertising. We ran a campaign, uh, I guess, five or six years ago called Man Dictionary. Um, and it was effectively trying to create a new language for men to express how they felt by using puns and sort of boy talk and vernacular of men and I remember walking into an agency once and they gave me an honest critique of it and they said that's great but it doesn't tell me what to do and I said yeah but that's the point 
is it's not trying to it's just trying to enjoy the debate because actually I can't tell you what the answer is I can just tell you that the debate is part of the answer or may incubate the answer and that so that was an advertising campaign and then actually interestingly uh, we've never asked for any money Karma's never asked for money the only time we've ever asked for money actually was on that same poster campaign where we said uh, be terribly kind of you if you could text us five quid nobody ever responded because we're not that kind of brand so latterly the most powerful campaign we've actually ever done sort of bypassed advertising entirely although it used I consider to be the best advertising in agency in London to come up with the idea which was Project 84 and Project 84 that I hope some of you have heard about because certainly we got 3.1 billion social impressions in one week if that's a mark of any success was uh, a way of trying to establish those HS numbers about male suicide by creating 84 statues with an artist called Mark Jenkins on the roof of the ITV building and particularly this morning building with some dedicated programming from uh, Holly Willoughby and Phil uh, on this morning through the week and effectively there were amazing statues there were beautiful things there were life-size statues of individual men stood on top of the building and the response was really interesting because people up and down the Thames were spotting this installation and thought it's a beautiful piece of art but it took them some time to then realize what that beautiful piece of art was about and I, we called it when we were incubating the whole idea we called it the velvet fist which is initially it looks terribly nice and sort of smooth and, and luxurious but actually when it punches you on the nose it makes you bleed and that's what that campaign did and again it wasn't a trying to create a piece of communication that gave people a directional answer what it did was create extreme provocation and then through all sorts of other behavioral things that we were doing digital and, and editorial and otherwise we were encouraging people then to on the one hand sign a petition which uh, ultimately um, created uh, the first ever minister for suicide in the UK government which is an extraordinary feat after at that point 13 years of campaigning and banging the drum but also we created this conversation and this conversation seems to have, judging by our income levels and the engagement we now have as a business, which just created the most seismic change in the way people think they can now go about trying to challenge culture and change the world such that 84 men a week aren't taking their lives. And that doesn't follow any kind of normal kind of, uh, the, certainly the marketing logic I grew up with in the advertising world, it changes it entirely. Um, it was all about behavior and changing behavior. If brands want to get real about the moving beyond the stereotypes of gender, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that they face? I always claimed when I was a marketing person that my issue was most of the time that an organisation handed me something and I was expected to market it to the outside world. And I didn't seem to have too much authority over actually what I was handed. And actually, when I became a consultant, I often swivelled back into the organisation and said, well, hold on a minute. Is there a culture that is true to what you're communicating to the outside world that actually is a vein that runs the way th right the way through your organisation? When I think about gender, and I certainly with the conversations that we're having at Calm with other corporate partners, starts with if you, there's no amount of advertising we will either endorse or co-create with you or get involved in if we do not feel that the culture actually speaks to what we consider to be the issue around gender. And therefore, I think there is uh, a lot of things that a brand can do that actually starts from within. And, and I don't think that's just as easy, for example, in, in the mental health world as appointing a mental health first aid officer. That's the kind of easy route. And we all know we've never called HR and saying we're feeling a bit down about the world. That's not going to happen. So how do you create a culture in an organisation? And for me, most importantly, a kind of vernacular or a set of words or a language around gender that enables people to feel comfortable to explore this stuff. 
Because I think until you've done that within an organisation, there's absolutely no point trying to market it to the outside world. And I think there are some examples in recent times, and I probably won't name names, where it feels like they are trying to create an outside impression to their customer base, but I have a suspicion if I scratch beneath the surface and got beyond the marketing department, what they're talking about would not be a behaviour that's actually entrenched in the organisation. And I think the language of gender is very easy to try and push people into certain sort of compartments when actually they're probably not very comfortable in any one compartment. And, and, I, and I don't blame marketing for that, but I think marketing likes compartments because it makes their life much more accountable and easy. So how do we get away from this compartmentalization? Because to me, it seems like what you're saying is we need more flexibility around how we think about any of these classifications, whether it's gender or something else, and, and doing it in a more positive way. Yeah, it's interesting. So one of the things that I'm uh, mildly obsessing about at the moment as a 47-year-old man is um, with a 14-year-old son, actually, who's you know going through those very early parts of his working out who he is moments, which I'm hoping will continue until he's 47, like me, mm-hmm. still trying to work out who he is, <laughs> because I think that's good, uh, increasingly. Uh, long gone are the days where we were told to uh, be a certain way because of the way we were brought up and have ambitions that kind of try to as- aspire to what our parents thought our ambition should be, because those days seem to have, they're myth and legend, a bit of nonsense, really. Campaign Against Living Miserably is about not accepting a state of mind of misery for men, but we, we're not going to tell them what non-misery looks like we're going to say if you actively reject that you have to pursue something else you have to redefine masculinity in a way that befits you as an individual and not as a collective group of people actually in 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 all of my various side hustles I, i talk lovingly about the north star and because i i believe that actually in order to get an organization culturally to a certain point and actually within a marketplace you've got to set yourself a series of kind of horizons that are achievable and then you navigate people up etc but actually as a an executive my belief is that the chief executive has got to have a picture of what the world looks like when they're at the top of the mountain because that's the ambition for going there otherwise why would you bother going and what does the world look like Uh, most chief executives forgive me chief executives who might be listening to this i always get a sense they're very good at plotting a flag at the top of the mountain that has a big pound sign on it or a dollar sign and they can tell you what the world looks like financially but they can't actually tell you what they see from the top of that mountain which might be adjacent markets or other brands on other mountains or you know, oh, there's the sea over there. That's nice. I'm very, very infatuated with how businesses have a North Star. And I don't want to use the P word in this podcast, but I'm going to, which is <laughs> everybody's looking for purpose. Audiences are looking for purpose. Brands are looking for purpose. And for me, purpose is not something you find in a cupboard latterly as this kind of CSR exercise. It's that North Star, which is why am I going in this particular direction? And wherever I might be, and I might be lost at any one time in my journey as a business, I can still see the North Star wherever I am. And North Stars for me are increasingly relevant to young people growing up. Bring it back to my son, which is he doesn't know how, which mountain he's climbing or how he's going to get up certain gullies or he might get distracted by a pretty waterfall or anything else. But what I'm really keen to establish in him at quite a young age is the North Star principle, which is actually what do I want the world to be for me? How do I establish my sense of place and value in that world? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So for brands and businesses that, you know, are embarking on this journey of setting milestones in having these new gender conversations, uh, going back to the point about um, starting early, I think it might also then be important for brands to look at what they can do to facilitate that um, new conversation around gender at a very early age for people who may not yet be their consumers, but who will get there one day. And so in some ways, I suppose, it's about doing something without an immediate ROI in traditional marketing terms. I, I call it good corporate citizenship. I don't know. I, again, it's one of those things, if you're not careful, you're putting all this pressure on burden on brands that they've got to sort the world out. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't really side with that. I, I had a very interesting conversation with somebody the other morning who was talking about mental health and male suicide in particular, who was interested in what Calm did. And talked about neuroplasticity, which is not a term I was particularly familiar with, but talking about the the research that's been done that basically says, I think it's it's either seven or ten, I mean it is definitely young, that effectively the brain's ability to flex as opposed to kind of fix on all the conditions that you are set at a very young age, your upbringing, probably your community, etc. The neuroplasticity starts to get very fixed or starts to become less plastic at a very young age. And it takes something seismic in one's life to, to create a moment of neuroplasticity again, which might be something as intense as divorce or, you know, finding out you've got cancer, God forbid, or something like that. It's the point at which, and I, I regard them as pivot points, which is the point at which you stop and go, hold on a minute, maybe the journey I was going up that particular mountain has led me into a cul-de-sac and I don't know quite how to get out of here. I now have the opportunity to change. At the age of 28, uh, my first marriage dissolved, and that for me was a very, very pivotal moment where I suddenly went, hold on a minute, I feel like I'm living up to a set of expectations that I'm not comfortable with anymore, and that has been proven, so I've got a chance to reinvent. Uh, and, and it was a perfect example, which is why when he was talking about neuroplasticity, it chimed with me in huge alarm bells, or maybe church bells, going, my word, I get exactly what he was talking about. So you kind of look at that and you go, okay, so the issues of gender get codified at a hellish young age. And the issues of the language that, that young people are adopting around gender are codified at a very young age. And that kind of bothers me at the moment. So if I'm not heterosexual, or I'm not homosexual, I'm bisexual. And you've got 11-year-olds in a playground using language like that. And I, and I sit there and go, no, I just don't think you know what, what you are at the moment. So let's not hang our hats on particular bits of language that feel like easy, ready reckoners for a life that is just complex. Growing up is complex. And I think, so brands do have a responsibility, whether it's whether they're recruiting young people or whether they're talking to the grey market, silver market, particularly the silver market, because in a sense they are often propagating old-fashioned language and old myths about gender, etc. I do think there is a responsibility of brands to go, actually, it's not that simple. And there is infinitely more nuance here that they should be exploring and interrogating through the work that they do, whether that's face-to-face -face with the consumer or in advertising. So it sounds like brands, I guess what you're saying is they have a responsibility to not solve problems in that sense, but 
to start conversations, start debates, try and prompt people to to break out of these categorizations or these very simplistic, not nuanced ways of thinking. To push back on that, though, a little bit, just for the sake of it, I suppose, is do brands always have a right to do that? I mean, are, are there, I can probably think of cases where, you know, you, no one wants to listen to a brand trying to start a big cultural debate or social conversation. Uh, so when might that be appropriate versus when might it not be appropriate? Yeah, and I, and I think that's a, a very sensible pushback because I agree with you entirely. There is evidence of two particular brands um, recently who I think one has got it absolutely right and one has got it entirely wrong on that basis where it feels like they've headed off and tried to where the, 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 the brand that's got it wrong, in my view, has headed off to try to create an extraordinary cultural debate and seems ill-equipped to back the debate up. So having created it, they've all sort of slightly run to the hills going, oh my God, I don't really know how to justify what I've just done. Whereas there are other brands who have very elegantly, I think, and somewhat under the radar, built a fabric within their business that proves that they mean it. So when they go out and make a provocation, they've got something to back it up. And they've got people who have followed them on that journey. It's also being ready for scrutiny. Um, if you're a brand that starts that sort of a provocative conversation, mm -hmm. then you'd best be ready for scrutiny of how you're living that uh, within your organization. Uh, I'm reminded of some work we did um, in Europe and one of the European countries, I think it was the Netherlands, uh, where on the subject of brands taking a political or a social stance beyond the products they manufactured and sold, some of the consumers just responded with, a colloquialism, stick to your knitting, which essentially means, you know, do what you do and do it right uh, before you start, you know, getting too big for your boots. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because when brands start to take this sort of a big stance, it's really important to have a plan for it. So what happens after that? Well, I remember a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, but it all feels very recent, um, the endless debate in marketing circles about the growth of social media and how social media was the next kind of marketing battleground and uh, there were lots of people probably much better qualified than I going around and selling their services telling brands how to enter that space and it seemed that they all seemed to fall foul of one very simple simple thought which is a brand uh, felt like it was the starting point of a conversation and that the conversation didn't really deserve to exist until they deigned to offer something to that conversation whereas most really good social media experts were saying no you spend the first year of your life Mr Brand listening because the conversation's out there. The question is, how are you going to create an intervention point or a value-added moment that adds something to the conversation? If you're not, stay out of the conversation. And I think that's even more true now. Uh, whether that's above the line or below the line or at the coalface at retail or anything else, you've got to be really careful what conversations you think you have a right to wade into. Because I think a lot of customers, consumers, are now entirely savvy and deeply cynical of brands that suddenly wade into something, particularly if it has cultural significance. Because it's like, it's just not your place. We know what your agenda is. And we can, and we will probably be sceptical before, and you have to prove, do an awful lot to earn your rights to be in that conversation, probably more so than five years ago. Having said all of that, so in the last, since we were involved in the Heads Together campaign which for those of you who haven't heard of it was a campaign a mental health campaign started by the royals uh, william and harry and kate and uh, latterly megan started this campaign called heads together and it was trying to unify the general public in the uk around mental health and saying actually you know we need to discuss this and they enlisted six or eight charities mental health charities of which calm was one and, and i thought you know it was a terribly good thing in many respects What's been more interesting is having surfaced the issue at such a public level, 
is then the swathe of commercial organisations that have come in off the back of it. Now, many would argue in the mental health sector, oh, God, this is not a place for commerce. But I would argue that actually physical health has been revolutionised by the commercial sector mm -hmm. coming on board. I think we're in that interesting point where the commercial world is beginning to embrace mental health as a commercial opportunity. A lot of them are going to get it wrong. But actually, in trying to work out what's right and what's wrong is going to completely kind of sh shift the shape of how the world thinks about mental health. And so I, I embrace it. I think it's good. Actually, I'd love to be part of that conversation. And increasingly, we can't. We are part of that conversation where we've got a queue of corporates saying, I want to do something. It has to kind of hit our EBIT and everything else, all the other kind of normal commercial KPIs. But the output can have real purpose. Help us, help us shape that. And I think that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I've been thinking about while we've been talking about all these issues is the need for maybe more and better and more nuanced data. There's, there's a lot more nuance there. So I'm thinking of some of the, the work in the What Women Want study from Kantar around measurement of self-esteem for, for men versus women and sort of discrepancies there. But what, what else could, could maybe be measured so that either brands or governments or nonprofits or charities, whoever it might be, can, can track these things and these issues, these complex issues over time? We, we um, at Calm, we're doing quite a lot of work, actually, at trying to build a corpus of data that enables us to plot not just the semantics, but the behavioral stuff around why a man can go from I'm all right on one day and then rationally want to take his life the next day and actually rationally be convinced not to take his life on a particular moment when he was planning to because something else has got in his way. And it could be as simple as his son's asked him to help him with his maths homework and his plan goes out the window. I think particularly with men, and I can only really talk, talk to the issue of masculinity here. For example, we run a helpline and we take about 16,000 contacts a month, something like that, of men in crisis. Um, and I mean extreme crisis. And in that conversation, actually what we found is that as we run this helpline over many years now, Men are deeply rational beings and therefore you counter the rationality of suicide to them with, your, with a different rationality, which is actually we can deconstruct the issues that have got you to the point where that is an option. And uh, if you could only go away tomorrow tonight or tomorrow morning and do certain things, call me back the next night and tell me what you've done and eventually we'll start taking the edge off the issues that have got you into this dark hole. And I, and I think it's very interesting so that there is a point where, as we know in the kind of social media world that we live in, where what is a claimed state of mind and particularly with the stigma around masculinity and some of the stone age stereotypes of being about being invincible and the provider and the hunter collector and all that kind of stuff actually a lot of men try to live up to that sense of station and status and bravado whereas scratch the surface underneath actually they are vulnerable quite insecure about their position in the world not quite sure what feminism has done and what the Me Too movement means has left them with. Their box is shrinking. They have uh, very traditional roles to fulfil. And actually, much as you, the media will, and we will all talk in probably in the liberal bubble of London about the move to, um, you know, uh, house husbands and, um, you know, uh, expended paternity in corporates, etc. Actually, out in a lot of the real world, men have to be a certain way. And uh, even if they don't even believe it, they have to claim to be a certain way. And therefore, I think we have to be very, very careful about data, particularly claim data, uh, that tries to explore what 
masculinity is about and more broadly what gender is about because I think often the reality is a somewhat darker shade of what we read or what we extrapolate from data. And I think, therefore, uh, my plea to brands and businesses and Kantar and, uh, and Calm as an organisation is that actually if we only shared data and got some really brilliant brains looking at the data, I think we could extrapolate the truth in a way that maybe to date we haven't really got to the truth. I think it's uh, time maybe to measure some new ways and, 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 new, and develop some new metrics um, around the whole issue of gender because uh, we haven't for the longest time collected the right data. Uh, we're now beginning to, I think, generate some forms of data that tell us what's going on. So social media, for instance, gives us a sense of what's happening in the moment, even if it is you know, claimed in bravado. I know that Kanta did this really huge study called Ad Reaction, where we, we looked at um, how men and women felt about how they were portrayed in communication. And that gave us some interesting uh, data about how men as well as women, felt that they weren't correctly portrayed in advertising and so on. And so the more we can do this sort of stuff, where we start looking at, uh, you know, all of the agents shaping the gender conversation, communication is a part of it. The more we can do this, collect data from there and start sort of triangulating it a bit to tell a story yeah. rather than looking at it in isolation. Yeah. I suppose we should get to a good place there. And, and what's interesting at Calm is that actually a large proportion of our supporter base are women. And I think if feminism is to teach men anything, it's how to self-help. And the, 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 the role of women in redefining masculinity is not to be underestimated at all. Um, and we are seeing it in certainly in, in a lot of our supporter base, is that actually fundamental to the change of masculinity is actually how women are prepared to encourage and solicit men to go, you don't have to live up to that stereotype. We want you to be different. We may not be able to tell you what that is, but we're, we're happy for you to be different. You've been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit uk.cantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.